It's a Greg and Dan Show podcast. Occasionally it happens where we meet cool people that we absolutely need to keep after the radio show. So earlier in the morning that we're recording this podcast, our guests Greg Wilson and Dana Bardolph were in on the Greg and Dan Show. And we decided we needed to keep them. Uh, we have an ulterior motive. They have slipped us money so that they don't have to go back out into the field to work. That's part of the thing that we've been bribed. It's, it's possible. We can do that. I made that part up. But uh, the, the the subject matter is archaeology. And these two folks, Greg and Dana, are in central Illinois, Peoria area, doing that kind of work. First, so I'm going to say good morning again to you, Greg and Dana. Good to see you both again. Good morning. Great to be here. Good morning. Uh, so I want to talk. We, we didn't get a chance to, to do this on the show so much because of time constraints, but I want to find out how you both came to do what you do. Dana, I will start with you. When you're a, a high schooler, uh, maybe, you're, maybe it started before, or is it something that... In college, you learned, wait a minute, there's a whole world that I can go explore. Tell me your journey. So that journey began for me in high school. I uh, took a biology class where we, it was an AP biology class, and so we had about a month after taking our AP exam where it was just sort of the, at the teacher's leisure to, to cover whatever topics they, they wanted at that okay. point. And by the way, where did you grow up? Where, where is high school? Oh, so I grew up in Los Angeles. Okay. So I'm in from California okay. originally. So you're in LA, you take this class, and, 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 and then what happens? And then, so my, my biology teacher does a whole unit on archaeology, and that's something that I think most high school students don't get exposed to yeah. and it just opened my eyes to something that I had no idea existed. So and, so immediately you're curious, right? Because that's what you have to be, I would imagine, to be in the field that you're in. You, if you're not curious, what's the point of doing it? Absolutely. Right? It's that curiosity and that it's that kind of blend of both the scientific and also the humanistic perspectives sure. of archaeology that really just grabbed me. And so then college was where? And then I went to the University of California, Berkeley, for college. Okay. And All so right. I, I was immediately intrigued, so I signed up for Introduction to Archaeology my first semester there. And then I had the opportunity to go down and do an archaeological field school in Peru. Uh, summer after my freshman year, I was 18 years old, and I just fell in love wow. with archaeology. And then from there, you got your Ph.D. or... Or doctorate, um, or uh, I mean, uh, masters, and and so on and so forth. What's your higher education part? I did so. I got a master's and then a PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I worked with Greg. And Greg's wife is also an archaeologist, and so she was my PhD advisor. Cool. And so I did my dissertation work in Peru. But I've always loved Illinois archaeology. I was introduced to it through Greg, and so after finishing my PhD, I came back and started working here. And I love Peoria, love the area, love the archaeology here. And again, really that comparative perspective. Greg mentioned it on the radio this morning. But really, I mean, the dynamics that you can study here are comparable to events taking place all over the world That's throughout wild. The time. We and never think a, of it. We, yeah, we, we don't. I'm, not, I'm speaking for people who have grown up here, right? I'm, I'm a native of this area. That does has never occurred to me. And currently assistant professor at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, right? Got yes, that. that's right. All right, Greg, take us where you grew up in Southern Illinois. I grew up in Southern Illinois, and there really was never a time where history and archaeology wasn't an important part of my life. No kidding. Yeah, my dad was a high school history teacher, and he was a French colonial reenactor, black powder oh, guy. Yeah. So in the in the 70s, I was running around dressed up as a colonial kid yeah. at Fort Deschard and <laughs> you know, do, going cool. to all kinds of cool events like that. So, And then by the time I was in junior high, we had joined the Kokia Archaeological Society. My first field school was in seventh grade at, wow. at, at Kokia. Yeah. So I just never had a chance. No, this, you were in. Always, you're locked in. Yeah, I was a lifer. And then so I 
I tried to get out a few times to go <laughs> go do other things, but I always came back to doing research in Illinois. I said this to you uh, after we got off the air. It always pleases me to see people, and I can see it in your face and just the way you are, yeah. that you, you both are doing something that you are supposed to be doing and you enjoy doing it and it's it's a good it's a good life when you can do that right that's right and i think you are too right oh me and danny we we know we're lucky cats we 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 started doing this a long time ago and every morning we get to get up and talk and make each other laugh or think and then meet people such as yourselves uh we do that too yeah isn't that cool it is and it's not lost on us that you're our greg and dana and we're greg and dan so we have that in common (laughs) we will forever be brethren and sister right um Talk to me about Illinois again. So, Dana, you mentioned it a moment ago, how rich this is here. What is, and, and I've learned this over the years from various people. One is John Morris, who is the head of the Peoria Riverfront Museum. He is quick to tell you of how that river that we see out our studio window here this morning has been such an important part of human life here in this part of the planet. Speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. So, I mean, this area is an incredibly rich area. We have the river, which has facilitated transportation. So we have people that have you know, sort of been moving up and down throughout the broader Midwest and, and using rivers as a form of transportation. They're also really fantastic in terms of providing a food source, fish, waterfowl, etc. We have really productive, really fertile agricultural lands here. So this was an attractive place to settle for people and, and, for a and long And how time. far back was that? If, if you, if you It may not be what you're studying currently and why you are in in our community these last few weeks. But but how far does it go back, Greg? The Pleistocene, really into the Ice Age. And the really interesting thing is archaeologists are finding older occupations all the time that, you know, we thought originally maybe 12,000 years ago, but people are finding even older settlements here and other places in North America. For folks who see it from a distance, we watch movies, we see TV shows about what it is you do. Connect dots for me and our listeners. Why why do we need to know it? What, what is it about the connections I, I to a thousand years ago or yeah. ten thousand years ago? I think there's a, a variety of different ways to answer that question, but probably some of the same challenges, opportunities, and challenges that uh, we face right now, um, people faced long ago, and. There are droughts, there's conflict and warfare, there's new people coming together, migrations, there's good years and bad years, and all of that happened over the course of the millennia. And so it's kind of like little laboratories that we can investigate, you know, how all that played out in the ancient past. That That can give us information that helps us understand what's going on today. Um, you know, beyond that, there's, we can learn a lot about what this place, when I say place, the Peoria area looked like, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, five thousand years ago, and that can inform us directly about how to kind of rewild the area, how to conserve the area, how to bring back kind of uh, the, the an original ecology to right. this place. I like the word rewild. Yeah, rewild an area sounds yeah. cool. So uh, you have been here for how long, Dana, this uh, so time? I have been working in the Peoria area since uh, 2017 uh, at this point. And so we have been excavating at uh, a, a few different sites here and doing some of those remote sensing surveys. Uh, since then, we had a little bit of a COVID hiatus. Uh, but then, you know, each time that we're here, we're here for about uh, a month, five, six well, so, weeks of our field So, seasons. So this current visit is, is not the first time. You, you've been here many times. I didn't realize that. And so that investigation is leading to how, how does it 
how does it flourish? How does it uh, move from the first day to the millionth day or whatever? I don't know how long you've been here, but, uh, well, I do know, but, I mean, I don't know how many days. So from that first time you ever came here to yesterday, what has happened and what do you have you learned that you didn't know 10 years ago? Uh, so I think we've been really been fortunate to be able to explore a number of different questions through looking at archaeological sites that date to a few different key time periods that okay. we're interested in. So starting at about a thousand years ago, where we're looking at what anthropologists and archaeologists call the origins of Mississippian culture. These are complex societies. So looking at issues like the origins of social inequality and you know how broad religious movements shape interactions between people. Can you start? Can you can I interrupt you? Because that I don't understand. Yeah. So, no, I understand what you said. Yeah. I don't understand how you do what you do sheds light on that. So can you guys help me with that? Yeah, so some of you may be, some of the listeners may, may be familiar with Cokia Mounds. Yeah, down near for St. sure. Louis. So, Absolutely. Uh, people, what, what people may not realize is that's the largest Native American settlement in North America, north of Mexico. At um, 1000 A.D., it had a population of 15,000 people, which was bigger than London at the same time. Wow. So it was really an incredibly large civilization, huge urban you know, occupations. We need to know, like, really how those – how and why did people choose to come together? And these were diverse groups of Native American groups from northeastern Arkansas and Missouri and Indiana and all the way up here – all of these groups came together. We need to, so our, one of our, the kind of some questions or issues that we can investigate is how and why did that happen? You know, how, the origins of cities. Well, and you mentioned religion, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so so how do you how do you figure that out? Do you find literally churches or altars or or religious? Artifacts? Is that what you're looking at? Uh, we do find evidence of things like temples. So there is you you know, special purpose okay. ritual architecture that we can find. Yeah. Also, we find you know certain uh, types of material culture like you know pottery that has certain iconographic designs mm. on it that give us clues. We don't know exactly uh, what these ancient religious beliefs were. Uh, the Native American groups that we studied did not leave behind uh, written records. And there was also a gap in the occupation of the region before the colonial era in terms of any of those uh, historic accounts so those were different people that were that were documented that were living in the in the area at the time of of european colonization um, but we have clues to it so by finding some of these you know special purpose buildings temples uh you know material media like pottery that sort of express you know certain uh certain motifs and things like sure. that that have ties to to some types of religious expressions that were documented in the historic era we we're talking about how you guys grew up in this and how, how your your curiosity was peaked at different places i recall and i have always been here for the most part i've lived uh, away a couple times but i grew up in pekin illinois down the way hmm. And it was very common for us to always go on a field trip to Dixon Mounds. Now, that's changed, and I want to get to that in a minute. But it was awe-inspiring as a little boy. You're 10 years old, and you get off the bus, and you see this this thing that you – I mean, it's like a, it's, it is a different world, and it really speaks of, of something that grabs you. It never struck me. And, of course, I'm not Native American, but it never struck me as disrespectful. I thought it was of the utmost respect that we were quietly learning about these folks that we were looking at. Take us to the or through what's changed sociologically and how we respect these sites 
especially when there are human remains available. Right. Uh, because that was, we were looking at human remains. Right. And that's changed over the years. And I know it's not as, right. as the way it used to be. Oh, tell me about how that maybe even affects what you do. So one of the major efforts that is part of our research and outreach is uh, tribal consultation and write-out collaboration. So this summer we we had a variety of Native American groups, uh, tribal representatives come through Peoria. Really? We introduced them to members of the Peoria Riverfront Museum. We gave them tours of important archaeological sites in the region. Many of them are very interested in their ancestral you know, sure, heritage think, yeah. in this area. So I think that, you know, maybe one of the issues with what was happening at, at Dixon Mounds all those years ago is that Native Americans are sort of blocked out of the, the decision-making yeah. uh, that went into making those kinds of displays. And, you know, one of the things we learn as anthropologists is that people just have lots of different values. Different groups have different values around the world. And while, you know, Euro-Americans may not have a problem with skeletal remains yeah. of their ancestors being displayed. A lot of Native American groups have religious beliefs that that's, that's pretty tr problematic. Yeah, okay. So, and, and, and we grow. I mean, that's the that's thing. Right. We, we grow and yeah. change and learn yeah. and, and adapt, and, and that's okay. And that's yeah. okay. So let's, uh, let's get to this. Uh, so you guys are in town um, broadcasting uh, this podcast on uh, taping this podcast on June 8th. So here we are, beginning part of the month. You've been here for two, three, four weeks, something like that. Did you come for a specific site, Dana? And again, we're keeping all of this private, and, and we're not going to say where it is and all that because we have to protect that. But were you coming this trip for a specific place? We were. So for this uh, this particular trip and, and for previous research seasons that we've had, we usually have uh, a site that we target in mind for excavation in terms of a site that can answer some of the research questions. How that did we're you pick it? In. How did you pick it? So this site uh, we are interested in because it represents the latest or the last uh, Mississippian mound centers, kind of the last major occupation prior to the colonial era of the Illinois River Valley. And so we we knew about the site previously. There had been some work that had been done. Uh, in, you know, in several decades past, there was an archaeologist from Western Illinois University who had done some work there about 20-some years ago. It was actually, you know, one of the earliest sites that was ever recorded in Tazewell County. So we knew about the site. There are a number of sites that we're interested in, um, but this one in particular was one that we knew that we wanted to investigate because our previous uh, previous work has looked at kind of the origins or the beginnings of Mississippian culture, and then we also want to look at the end of Mississippian culture. So can you, we knew can, this site could help us get at that. Help me get my brain around this again. Mississippian culture culture is a time period uh, define it for me as a layperson. What does sure. that mean? Sure. So Mississippian is a broad term that anthropologists and archaeologists use to describe uh, a broad group of uh, maize agriculturalists, so so corn agriculturalists, sure. who had uh, expressions of, of social hierarchies, so inherited leadership positions. They usually lived in large towns with mounds and plazas, and then there were sort of smaller outlying settlements. So archaeologists recognize a lot of similarities in material culture, in pottery styles, in stone tool styles, in you know artistic expression, uh, that we see this kind of spread out across the broader Midwest and, and southeastern United States, starting about a thousand years Interesting. ago. So I, th I can't help but think uh, a thousand years from now, uh, 
hmm. when people uh, that do what you do, or uh, I hope we're still around doing all that, and they look at what we do, and then they think, huh, did everybody have a mall? I mean, because <laughs> you talked about how they were all similar, and humans do that. We, we, we find something that works, and when we replicate it, even a thousand, five thousand years ago, we, we, we were prone to do that. So, Greg, when you, so you come, uh, again, take me through this particular trip. So you, you knew you were going to go to that place. You knew what you were kind of expected to find. And I know that you said to me off microphone that there are people working that site right now. So how many, it's not just the two of you, how many people are part of such a, an adventure? Sometimes as many as 15. I think on this trip we have 10 or 11. Okay. It's been a sort of our high water mark. Are they students? We have graduate students. We have undergraduate students. We have local volunteers. And we have guests right. from uh, archaeologists from other portions of the state. Really? And so are you, one of you or both of you, like the project manager? Uh, Dana, works? Dana and I both are. We share those responsibilities. Um, I, I try to burden her as much as possible with with that. Good job, man. Good job. Yeah. Well, but you have to. I mean, it's like building a house. You've got to, you have to have the contractor, and that's then right. everybody else is a sub, yeah. and that's the way that has to work. Somebody has to be in charge. When you get started, do you have a finite amount of time? You because you both are busy people. Uh, you, all right, we we only have three weeks, and so we know we will have to accomplish a certain amount in three weeks. Or do you go until? you accomplish what you were after we definitely have a finite amount of time a month okay. or six weeks or two months so we've learned through the years how to organize our excavation projects to fit into that time period got it on the radio broadcast which was on the greg and dan show prior to this taping of this podcast you said something to me and i didn't bring it up because i didn't want to go too far afoot uh, a field down the other way you said Peoria Academy of Science had done some work that led you to know some things. And I was embarrassed to tell you, I have never heard of that. What is that? Well, Dana can also speak to this, but it, it was established in 1930, and it was dedicated to the advancement of scientific research in the Peoria area. And they ha it still exists. You're kidding. Yeah, there are a number of different sections uh, devoted to entomology, paleo, you know, um, botany, geology. And back in the early days of the academy, archaeology was part of that focus. And so, is it, Dana, is it a group of scientists or just academics? Who, who makes up the Peoria Academy of Science? Uh, so it, it's a, a broad did. mix. So there was original ties to Bradley University, but okay. you know we have folks that are you know at the Peoria Zoo. There's you know herpetologists oh, and there's zoologists and you know botanists and you know members of the Audubon Society. So it's a mix of of practicing scientists and and university researchers and uh, you know including archaeologists. You know sort of in decades past, um, but uh, we're also hoping to sort of reprise that presence of archaeology cool. know, within the region. You had mentioned that your one of your specialties, or maybe your specialty, is a plant. And you said some words I'd never heard before, so say what it is again. Yeah, so paleo-ethnobotany. So okay. we kind of break that down. Paleo, think old, okay. right? ethno-living, and that's really about people. Uh, and then botany, you know, plants. So it's about the relationship between people and plants in the, in the past, rather than sort of studying plants for their own sake, the way that botanists so do. So when you're doing your research, dig. I, is that the way I say it? Did I say a dig? Sure. sure. I don't want to be a TV cliche, but if you're it's doing a dig. dig. So you, dig. do you see things in the dirt, in the ground, in the soil that that maybe other people don't see because your keen eye is looking for plant material or 
or residue of something that, you know, if I saw it, I would just think it was dirt. What is that true? I mean, I, I would say absolutely yes. So the the uh, plant remains that I look at are are very very small, and so that is like something how small? that we like. What are we talking about? Like sometimes we're talking about a seed that's a millimeter in length. Oh come so on, Dan! I can't see tiny. that stuff. I can't see that no, stuff. Nobody can how see do you that. see it? I see it, but we collect sort of bulk soil samples, and yeah. then we sort of carefully and painstakingly analyze it underneath a microscope. <sighs> So I, we like to think of archaeology as sort of a slow detective process. And you guys have a lot of patience. For every month that we yeah. spend in the field, that's about a year in the lab. Wow. Now, Greg, I, I didn't get to this on the radio broadcast, but do you have a specialty like that as I well? I study architecture and community organization. Oh. Also, I'm a bit of a generalist. I study ancient ceramics or pottery and also Ooh. stone tools. Oh, that's kind yeah. of fascinating. That that probably was uh, uh, born out of you being that child reenactor when they had the tools back. Your dad did your dad have tools from the Cer- certainly yeah all yeah. kinds of implements of that's cool of destruction. What about architecture? <laughs> yeah, 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 true. What about architecture around here? Yeah. So what, what, what was what was typical back a thousand years ago? Or right now we're we're excavating a seven hundred year old burned Native American building. Okay, and the way we can recognize that archaeologically is when we remove the plow zone. That's the sort of usually about the upper foot of, a, of an agricultural well, field. Not so much. Yeah, dist- yeah, that's disturbed by the plow. And when we get through that, we see a big rectangular stain in the ground. And that's really a little basement that was excavated by Native Americans. Wow. And at the bottom of that basement usually are long trenches along the sides, each of the four sides of that house. And they would put individual posts. And there's a couple of different ways that they would make a roof. Sometimes they would bend the saplings over that were in the wall and tie them together to form a rounded roof. Other times they would connect a completely different set of poles to make a kind of peaked or gabled roof. And then they would cover the whole outside of the house with thatch to make it waterproof. Wow. And and all of that, now this 700-year-old burnt home, if I walked up today, first of all, Pre-dig, there's no yeah. way I would know anything was there. Yeah. It just looks like a farm field, right? But but after you have done the removal of that top 12 inches or so, would I see that square? You absolutely would. Yeah. Uh, this one is about 8 by 8 meters in size, and, and it's uh, filled with bright orange-red burnt soil and burnt timbers. So it's very visible. Is there any way to ever know why it was burnt? Yeah, uh, this one looks like it was a part of a, a planned abandonment, probably of the entire town. About wow. the about the the time period, the whole region was abandoned due to a big drought. So we had a drought here seven hundred yeah. years ago. Everyone said, uh, "Hey, we got to go. Uh, this isn't going to sustain us. We don't have enough food." That's and- right, and people left all the way from here, all the way down to the Mississippi Ohio confluence. Wow, it was such a huge drought. In this particular place, have any idea how large that town was? It, from looking at the number and size of buildings, it may have been as many as four or five hundred people living there. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Dana, now what happens? Uh, you guys, you say for every month of digging, there's a year of research and things. So this is culminating tomorrow, right? You're you're done tomorrow, and then how? Take us through the next year. What happens? Uh, so we finish field work tomorrow, and then the next step is really going through all of the different artifacts and the, and the finds that we have from the season, a really systematic, kind of careful, 
cataloging, counting, weighing. So we have all of these different categories. We have ceramics, we have uh, stone tools, we have animal bones, we have the plant remains. So really kind of carefully sort of sorting through them and, and categorizing and, and being able to generate inventories that are then, uh, we can make comparisons to, to other archaeological sites either that we've excavated or that other researchers have published so that we can compare what we find and sort of track changes either through time or kind of through space in terms of what life was like for the people living in this house compared to people living at other sites right. and under different environmental and social conditions. I try not to ask uh, yes or no's, but here we go. Was this successful? Yes. Very. Oh, very good. Good. <laughs> very. Yes or no. So very. Said, no, yes. no. Very is very nicely done, yeah. Greg. So uh, I know you are close with, and so are we, the Peoria Riverfront Museum. That's right. And we've mentioned John Morris, our friend. John and I have been friends for decades and nobody is more enthusiastic than john in his knowledge and emotion about the history of peoria and the importance of peoria will we be able to learn about this particular dig through the museum is that would be fair to say or no that's right i mean starting a little over a year ago uh the peoria riverfront museum essentially adopted us Nice. So yeah, John we, has a way of doing that. Yeah, That's we have nice. a very strong connection. We have uh, participated in archaeological events, including a, a recent one uh, focused on the public, it, it, uh, where we would identify artifacts that the public would bring in. Oh, cool! We'll be giving talks, helping make exhibits, basically uh, anything. Uh, John and folks there need us to do. So, do we stay in touch with you through them? Is that the? I'm, I guess what I'm asking is: is do you have a social media place for, that we send you, or we send our listeners, or do we do it through the museum? I think the museum for now is the, the, the most direct way. route. All right, yeah. uh, Greg Wilson, University of California, Santa Barbara, Northern Illinois University is where Dana Bardolph calls home, and they teach uh, new students all of what you both have been so passionate about for so many years. Thank you for doing that part. And thanks for coming in and being on the Greg and Dan Show podcast. This I could talk to you for hours. You got I got to get you back out in the field. Those guys are going to be mad at me if you guys didn't go back to work. Good to see you both. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Greg.